So glad that you've joined us here at the, at the bridge this morning, whether online or here in person. We're so glad to be part of the church together. I'm loving this series through Ephesians, and uh, today we are in Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. My wife and I love to listen to mysteries. We have an app on our phone that connects us with the library, and sometimes if we're taking a long ride or doing a puzzle together, usually that's a vacation when we can do a puzzle together. But we will listen to a, a, a mystery um, or something, and, and somewhere along the way, we'll get a break and we'll start asking, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think this one ends? Now, my wife is the better sleuth than I am. She usually can figure it out ahead of me, but the goal is to try and solve it. And if the author is good, they keep a couple of possibilities in front of you the whole way through to make attention. If some authors don't do that very well, you kind of figure it out by the first chapter who the bad guy is, and you can kind of know through that. God has given us mysteries throughout his salvation story, things where he's kept some of the truth away from us. Hasn't, like, he didn't say when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, this is what's going to happen, guys. It's going to go for about this many years and and then in that time, there's going to be some ups and downs. I'm going to make some promises. But if ultimately, my son is going to come. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to redeem the story. Tell your kids, this is all going to work out good. That's not how it went. He told part of the story. He began to make promises. He talked about redemption and love. He stayed engaged with humanity, but gave part of the story. As we read this passage, we're going to be introduced to this concept of a mystery from scriptural perspective that is given some teeth in other passages as well, but the concept is that God has revealed much more to our generation that has been revealed in the past, and yet there's so much more to be revealed. So what I want you to see is that there is a mystery of God's gracious plan that is being unfolded and that we are a part of it. Would you join me in reading Ephesians 3, 1 to 13, and hear something about this mystery? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made, made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here ends the reading of God's word. This concept of a mystery that we're going to be looking at today is a, a goal of Paul, that Paul is using for reaching the Gentiles. The, the, the use of the word mystery and the concept of mystery wasn't prevalent in the Old Testament with the Jewish people. It was prevalent among the Greeks. It was prevalent among what they thought of as initiation into their particular worship of their particular gods, and they, had, they were polytheistic. So when they talked about that mystery, they were saying there is so much yet to discover when you become a follower of this God or that God. And those who were initiates were discovering the mystery. Paul now uses this tactic to describe to Gentile believers who are Greeks and others who have heard this word that there is a much greater mystery than you could have ever imagined. There is a much greater thing that the God, the only God, is doing. And we as his initiates are coming to understand what God intended for us. He begins this passage, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's the same way we'll start next week when he starts his next prayer. For this reason. Verse 14 will also start, for this reason. And in Pauline fashion, he goes down what seems like a run-on sentence or goes off to an aside, a parenthetical statement that lasts for 12 verses that we're going to look at today. But God does not have parenthetical statements like this without a purpose. God is the author using Paul. So for this reason, he's about to say, I'm going to pray for you in verse 14, but now he begins to talk about this mystery. For this reason, I, Paul, well, what is the connection? What's he talking about? For this reason, what's the reason that we've been discussing? The reason that we've been discussing is that we are adopted children of God, that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we have been forgiven, that we have a, a royal inheritance, that we are repurposed for praise, that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, we are morally bankrupt, and now we've been given grace, and we are united with God and with each other in dramatic fashion, so that Jews and Greeks, are, Jews and Gentiles, are joined in the same church and have a unity that has not been seen on the planet. It is only available in Christ. For this reason, for this reason, this identity in Christ that we have as followers of Jesus he now builds this argument. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now notice Paul, he's, this is one of the prison epistles, Ephesians. He wrote it presumably at the same time as Colossians, and they were sent at the same time with Epaphras. He is writing as a prisoner, but he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Caesar. He doesn't feel like it's out of control and people have stolen his life. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. What does that mean? That means that Paul was so secure in his calling 
and in the power and goodness of God that things that were happening in his life, he, might have, he could have felt like a pinball being just struck and knocked around this playing field that is our lives. But what he saw was God was absolutely in charge and working on behalf of his purpose. And who he was truly imprisoned by was Christ. Christ is the one that allowed him to be imprisoned and is using it for the furtherance of the gospel. And that's, if you see that in his other works, look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 and beyond, he's talking about that it's a good thing that he was imprisoned because God is using it to advance the gospel. His perspective was so strongly that he was a servant of Christ on mission while he's here of the gospel that imprisonment for him was just another tactic of God to advance the gospel. That he was doing his good work through the difficulties that he was going through. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, this wasn't a simple imprisonment. We understand that he was in chains. He had to pay for his own apartment, more than likely, and he was chained to a Roman guard all the time. Now, he could receive people, he could give letters and send them out, but he was still imprisoned, and he had come to terms with the fact that this was God's plan on behalf of the Gentiles, that the gospel would be advanced more further. And I just pause here and acknowledge a mystery that Paul couldn't have known that we now know. Paul was imprisoned and couldn't get to Ephesus, couldn't get to Philippi, couldn't get to Colossae, couldn't get to Philemon. He was imprisoned, and he knew in his heart that God was good and God was doing what he wanted to do, but he couldn't see how it would play out. Do you know that today we are studying these letters that went out instead of him going? We now have these letters, and it was God's plan to bring the gospel to us, to have a deeper understanding of what he meant by church. He allowed Paul to be imprisoned for our good. God's plan extended Millennia, it was a mystery that no one could have seen from Paul's perspective. In fact, maybe some of Paul's friends came and, give it up, dude, God forgot you. No, I believe that God is doing something beyond what I can see in this story, and I believe that I'm his servant. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, he's assuming that they've heard of his salvation, of the story that happened when he was saved. He was opposing the church. He was affirming the killing of Christians. He did not see Christ as the Savior or the Messiah. He saw him as one to be opposed. And on the road to Damascus, God interrupted his story. And Jesus stood before him in power, said, Paul, why are you opposing me? Now notice, he didn't then hear the story of what God was intended for him. God told Ananias to go tell Paul what the plan was. That's kind of remarkable. And you see this throughout Scripture that the intention is that Paul would go to the Gentiles and tell them. God could have told them, but God is using us in his story. And we get the first glimpse of his plan that the mystery is not just entrusted to the apostles, but ultimately it's entrusted to us to advance and to tell others. 
assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Stewardship is the, the vision or the, the picture of a home life where someone who is powerful and has a home has a steward who does his work building this home life. And God has used this example again and again, this illustration of what it means to be the body of Christ, that we are the household of God, where God indwells. And a steward in that family is one who is a servant, one who serves on behalf of the household. And we are the household of faith. And we are a holy gathering of God's people as people all around the world in holy fashion gather together. And do you know who you are as the household of God? Paul saw himself as a steward of God's grace, the one who was advancing this gospel message and bringing more people into the family. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. This mystery, as we're going to go on to see, was entrusted to the apostles. It was entrusted to Paul. It was shown to him that, yes, the Messiah has now come. When we were doing the series that just preceded Ephesians, we had these pictures on the wall up here of different passages from the Old Testament, which were glimpses into what was about to happen. And I could argue that it is much easier to preach that after Christ has come. Because if I would have preached those passages before Christ come, it would have been a lot of question marks. How did God make this promise in Isaiah? How does he bring a new covenant in Jeremiah? How is there a new temple in Ezekiel? What does this look like? And there is a mystery that has been revealed significantly at Christ. If we're looking at this salvation story as a story that God has written and comparing it to a mystery that Jeannie and I would listen to, Normally, we would wait until the last chapter to find out how it ends, right? And if you want to do it really quick, you, you read the last chapter, and the rest of it is just... Have you ever watched, listened to a mystery or seen a movie, and, and you've been so floored by the last chapter, you had to watch it again and see how it fit together? God is writing a story that he made promises that seemed too big to be true. Our sin is going to be gone, whiter than snow. How is that possible under the Mosaic law? That there is a Savior coming, a Messiah who's coming, that means God with us. How is that even possible? And then Christ comes, and I would argue that this is the pinnacle chapter, not the last chapter, we're living in more chapters, where more is being revealed, and there will be so much more revealed at the end. But when Christ comes, we now see God's plan to save, to redeem, to restore, to make the people of God Christ incarnate for their generation by indwelling us and empowering us and filling us with the Spirit and working out this miracle in dramatic fashion. But once we have heard of Christ, to a large degree, the mystery has been revealed. This is how God is going to do it. He's going to do it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how this plan unfolds. This mystery was entrusted to the apostles, and what started as a very small movement exploded across the known world in the first century. Under great persecution, 
The gospel went everywhere and people's lives were changed. People who were poor, people who were weak, people who had no hope, flooded to the church. There was love. There was miracles. There was the expectation that God would show up when they showed up and were part of this body. It was amazing. The mystery was entrusted to the apostles, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 5. The mystery is entrusted to the church. Look at how it begins in verse 4. When you read this, the expectation is that when you read this, you're going to perceive, you're going to see, you're going to understand. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened, going back to chapter 1. When you read this, now who are the you? From Paul's perspective, it was the people in the church in Ephesus and the gathering churches around it that were going to read this book, this letter. From God's perspective, he was writing it to us. From God's perspective, he was writing it to every generation that followed of Christians. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Then we begin to understand what the mystery is. The mystery of Christ, we're going to see in verse 6 that he's going to go on to describe this mystery. But at the core of it, we see the mystery described in Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery? And what do people who are not saved do not understand? That Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. Christ in you, and we have a hope of glory, which means we will be glorified with Christ one day. Which means that everything we're going through today can be considered pure joy as we trust God. As we trust God with today, knowing that he will be as Wonderful and good in the day that is to come. Just like Paul trusted when he was in chains, that God is doing something bigger than I can see. I trust him. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. There's a, there's a verse in 1 Peter that I love. It catches my wonder. I've said this before. I'm sorry if you have to hear it numerous times. I still am caught up in the wonder of it. The description of the gospel, and it says this phrase, things angels long to look into. And the picture I have is of angels looking over the edge of heaven, whatever. I'm just saying things I don't even know what it means. But they're looking over the edge of heaven and looking down, saying, no way, he's going to die for them? No way, they're, they're going to be redeemed, their sins are going to be forgiven? It isn't fair, it isn't equal, it doesn't seem right. How amazing is God's love that he would die for us. This verse is describing that moment when even though the prophets, and, and Andy read it in Hebrews, that same passage that makes me wonder that the prophets that preceded the gospel coming true in Christ just had a glimpse of what was about to happen, and we now know. 
And the sad thing is that we can become numb to it or stop being amazed by the love of God for us. The love of God and the goodness of God that's demonstrated in Christ. At this point in the first generation, this has been made known to the sons of men. In other generations, it is now revealed to the whole apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. And what we're reading is that first generation's understanding of the gospel. The ministry entrusted to the apostle, this ministry is entrusted to the church. What does that mean? It means around us in this world, there are so many that have no idea what we're talking about. There might even be people in this room that have no idea what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what it means to be alive in Christ, what it means to have hope beyond the grave. Not just hope, but joy. Joyful expectation. That there is coming a day when all things will be made right and, and more. That the sun rises, the sun sets, the beauty of the landscape, the, the intimacy between people, no brokenness, no wars, no sin, no failure. I can't even, can you imagine? I can only begin to imagine. And just like before Christ, whatever we would have imagined couldn't compare to what would become, now nothing, can, nothing that we imagine will compare to the day that we walk on those streets where the light that shines from the very throne room that emanates from Christ himself and the flowing water, the living word of God that flows between the tree of life and we can sip and drink from the tree of life and walk those streets of gold. And I don't think it's actual, I think it's whatever's common here, whatever's precious here is common there. There will be unhindered love and joy. And God himself will wipe away every tear. Can you picture it? When that mystery will be revealed. This mystery is entrusted to the church the mystery is also amplified in us. In verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery, as described in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is now given some legs by saying that it's this union of us with God and us with each other, and where Jews and Gentiles come into the same church as very unlikely people to be unified, when they become unified in Christ against all of the things that their prejudices and their hatred would tell them not to be unified over, when they become unified in Christ, they're declaring to all the people around them, Christ lives. Look at Christ in us, on display in the way that we treat each other. We don't live out the gospel on each other and with each other just for our benefit. As we live out the gospel and we love and we serve and we care for each other, then Christ is put on display and we are amplifying the gospel for the world around us. How do we know that Christ lives? Because he lives in us. And we are Christ to the world. 
we too are stewards of the grace of God. This mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, which just means good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. God took Paul, an adversary of the gospel, one that the church was afraid of and running from and scared, like when people wanted to kill Stephen, they laid their coats at the foot of Saul, who would be called Paul, his Greek name. And God, by his power and the gospel's power, turned him into the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's saying, do you see this transformation that happened and how that puts the gospel on display? Ananias was the first one that would go talk to Paul and, and, uh, and he had a conversation with God. You do know what he's been doing. You do know that he's killing people. I'm sending you to tell him he's going to suffer for me and he has to advance the gospel. Go tell him. The power of the gospel is beyond what we could imagine. What does that mean? Well, the person that you're working with or the person that's in your neighborhood that you think is the least likely to come to the faith, stop it. There's no such thing. Because God's power overcomes all sin and all fallenness. God redeems. Stop assessing people as closer to God or closer to the gospel because honestly, the person that is furthest may be the closest in Christ. Don't tell God who he can't save. We are just his servants in this household displaying the gospel. And Paul saw this as powerful enough to save him. In verse 8 he says, To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given. He's describing himself. He also described himself as the worst of all sinners. I don't think that's True, necessarily, that's how he felt about himself. That if God can save me, he can save anybody. Well, I got to confess, I felt the same way. If God can save me, he can save anybody. If God can use me, he can use anybody. If people would have looked at my family, or at least if I would have looked at my family with six kids growing up, I would have said, least likely to succeed was me. And my teachers would have been in line affirming it. But God said, no, he's mine. And let's see what I'll do with him as least likely. Paul sees himself as the very least of all saints, but this grace was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does it mean, unsearchable riches of Christ? Does that mean we should stop searching? No, they mean they're infinite and you're not going to get to the end of this mystery till you get to heaven. The extent of God's grace and love for you, the peace that he's giving us, that we have not yet begun to experience all that God has for us. And our prayer is that we come to the word of God, and when we read this, what is unsearchable, these riches of Christ, we become to understand even more. And because of that, we have faith. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
God, the creator of all things. And we learned in chapter 1 that before the foundation of the world, he chose people for his family. And here he's describing again that as the creator, he chose to bring to light the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Why doesn't God tell us everything? Why don't we show up at the beginning of the day and say, God, how are you going to provide a house for the Pratchers? How are you going to provide a house for Cindy? How are you going to provide a house for the Canals? Why didn't he tell us we could have planned? Right? Amen. <laughs> Why doesn't God tell us when illness is going to come? Why doesn't God tell us how this story ends? Why is it just one day I have cancer and a year later I'm gone? Why is that story not told to us so that we can prepare? The reality is, in part, and I'm, these are unsearchable questions that we'll ask God maybe one day if we're interested when we stand before him. But from my perspective, God intends for us to live by faith. Trust him that he's good. Trust him that even if we're in chains and we can't see just how far this letter will go, we're going to write the letter anyway and trust that God is good. And we can't see how far it's going to be with that we trusted God with this house purchase or with his illness. And in so trusting, there were kids that were watching. My, my parents went through three, two or three significant downturns financially in our family. And I watched my dad get up. I watched him go back to work. I watched him fight through it. And I watched him, his faith. And I don't think he was doing it because his son was watching. But I would tell you, I learned more from my dad going through difficulty than I ever did going through the easy stuff. I was taught more and discipled more through pain and suffering than I was through the easy times. We don't know who we're influencing. You are a steward of God's grace for the people around you. And your faith is put on display. In verse 10, so that through the church, the, you hear that? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. All right, this is a crazy verse. In the context of Ephesians, the rulers and authorities are, they satanic rulers and authorities, which means they don't see everything. They're not omniscient. They don't understand what God's doing. When Christ showed up, they might have figured out that Jesus was the Messiah before people figured out that Jesus is the Messiah, and their goal was to kill him. And what they didn't realize is in killing Jesus, they actually advanced the gospel. And now, as the church is putting on display, the rulers and authorities in the first century are learning that they had no idea what God was doing and how good God was and how powerful God was. 
and that God used even their efforts to advance the gospel while they thought they were winning. How is it that God speaks to them through the church? I, I, my perspective of what God's intention for the church is continues to grow. And I wonder at the mystery of what God's plan is through God's people. I used to say, God, you got to have a better plan than that. We're just people. I now say, God is so good that he can use even us. And God is so powerful that he can use even us. And he delights to write us into this redemptive story. What a mystery. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that God had always planned it and he will bring about his good purposes. In verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That means that as we're being the church, we can boldly come into our Father's presence because of Christ. We can come to him and ask him to redeem our story, to help us through this difficulty, to what we're struggling with, what we're grieving over, that God himself is, has a purpose in the grieving. And how do we know that Christ loves us? Because he suffered first. He suffered for us and said that I love you in the suffering. And our suffering in some way is sharing in the suffering of Christ. What a mystery. Verse 13 gives our application, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm asking you not to lose heart. I know that there are those here that are suffering, that are grieving. I pray for you. I know that it is not what you'd hoped or dreamed of. I know that the story doesn't always work out like it did where God provided three homes that we prayed for for months and months doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes the home isn't provided. And God's good plan is still going to work the way he wants it to work. The faithfulness of God is not that we get what we want. The faithfulness of God is that he will work this for good for us and everyone else and for the advancement of his purposes. And ultimately, it will be sharing in the glory of Christ in his throne room. Can you picture it? I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. Paul is suffering and he doesn't want them to be sad for him. He doesn't want them to give up. He wants them to keep fighting. And he says that it is for their glory, which is your glory, that somehow Paul's suffering will turn into the church's glory. He didn't know how. But for 2,000 years, preachers have preached about the suffering of Paul and how we can hang on and how God used it for good. One day, we'll gather in 
heaven's shores, that if we're so inclined, we'll sit around and talk about what God did during these days. And the story will be rewritten. Oh, God, I didn't know what you were doing. It's far more beautiful than I ever imagined because God is far more beautiful than we ever imagined. God is good. And he has you, so don't lose heart. Jeannie and I love to read mysteries and listen to mysteries together on that library app. Dream about who was and who got it, and sometimes if I'm lucky enough, I'll figure it out before Jeannie does. That's a mystery. <laughs> Love you, Paul. <laughs> and we could read the last chapter, and that would take that mystery out of it. Take really the fun out of the story completely. But the reality is, here we are, not able to see completely what the last chapter is going to hold. There's words like paradise and wiping tears away and peace and joy and light and God with us, unhindered. What's that going to be like? And us with each other, unhindered. We can't see the last chapter completely, but God can. And as sure as they could have trusted God that he would complete and fulfill every promise that he made in the Old Testament, we can be confident that he will fulfill every promise he made to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonder. What a mystery that you would love us and that you would send your son for us and that you would choose us as your stewards of the good news for this generation. What a privilege. We don't see everything or understand everything, and it grieves us at times. But Father, today we stand firm in putting our trust in you as a God who is good, who has us and will not let us go. In Jesus' name.